Good evening. Thank you. Uh, a very warm welcome to you as we settle in for what I expect will be a revealing conversation tonight here at the University of Sydney's Charles Perkins Centre Auditorium, named uh, in honour of Charles Perkins, the first Aboriginal man to graduate from university here in Australia. It's fitting that we're in this place because tonight's event is very much in the spirit of Charles Perkins's work. He worked across boundaries to create new opportunities and he reached beyond traditional ideas and limitations to find solutions to very human issues. Hello, my name is Dan Gaffney. I'm your host for this evening um, at an event titled Dying Reimagined, uh, Designing a Better Way to Die. Um, before I say more, let me acknowledge and pay respect to uh, the original people of this place, the traditional owners um, of the land that we're meeting upon, the land of the Gadigal clan of the greater Aora nation. The University of Sydney is built, built on their ancestral lands. So as we engage and learn from each other this evening, let's pay respect to the deep wisdom and to the stories that are embedded in Aboriginal custodianship of country. Shortly, uh, we'll dive into tonight's forum and talk about how we might bring more compassion and more imagination to palliative care and to the way that we care for each other uh, in times of sickness and as we approach the thorny issues, perhaps, of dying and death. To lead off tonight, we'll first hear from Dr. BJ Miller, uh, whom I'll introduce in a moment. BJ will speak for about 20 minutes um, and then be joined by Professor Kate White and Professor Rod McLeod, who are two leading experts in palliative care. A few rules of engagement for tonight's proceedings. Um, the panel will take questions from the room uh, and uh, to ask a question, all you need to do is put your hand up and we'll get a microphone to you. Um, a couple of other things to say is that um, uh, we'll also take questions on social media from Twitter. So if um, you use the Sid Health hashtag, we will note those and uh, you can participate that way. Some people are saying, no, I'm not going to do that. I'm just going to put my hand up. Uh, please also request, please ask questions only tonight, no unsolicited speeches. Um, and please avoid asking for personal health advice if you can. Um, we're not going to be diagnosing or curing or palliating anyone tonight. Um, I, I do know the panellists will linger after the event, so if you've got questions you want to put to them, that would be the time. Uh, a reminder also that tonight's forum is being audio recorded. Uh, by uh, Sydney Ideas and the ABC Radio National's Big Ideas program uh, for your listening pleasure in the days ahead. Uh, you can find all the Sydney Ideas podcasts at soundcloud.com forward slash sydney dash ideas. Uh, so to get a, a bit of a snapshot for who's in the room, if you, would, if you have a, a personal connection to tonight's topic, um, would you just raise your hand so we know who's here for personal reasons in relation to this topic? Thank you. And if you have a professional relationship to the, to the topic tonight, you're a clinician, researcher, student, uh, thank you very much. Uh, so uh, without further ado, let me introduce BJ Miller. Dr. BJ Miller is a hospice and palliative care medicine doctor. He sees patients and families in his clinic at the University of California in San Francisco at the Helen Diller Family Comprehensive Cancer Centre, where, where he also teaches and serves on faculty. 
Previously, BJ was Zen Hospice Project's Executive Director and Board member, where he contributed to the development of its pioneering model of human-centred end-of-life care. BJ also consults at the crossroads of palliative care and design issues, uh, and he speaks frequently on this topic. After completing his undergraduate studies in art history at Princeton University, BJ received his MD from the University of California, San Francisco, as a Regent Scholar, and he completed his fellowship in hospice and palliative care, uh, palliative medicine at Harvard Medical School. So please give a warm welcome to BJ Miller. Okay. Here's my thingy. Hello, everybody. Uh, thanks for coming out tonight. It's very nice to see you guys. Uh, these are moments that give me really great hope on a subject that's been sort of orphaned for a long time. Um, as those of us in the field know, you, you, you used to, people would ask you what you did for a living, and you'd say, oh, I work in hospice, run of life care, and you'd watch people just kind of <laughs> slink away <laughs> or change the subject. Um, but that's changing now uh, for all sorts of reasons. Um, but anyway, it's very nice to be here. I've enjoyed my stay in your country so far very much. And a huge thanks, before I forget, to, to Linda Hansen uh, for Pout of Care in New South Wales for bringing me here. Um, it's been a real treat already. Um, so, all right, let's jump in. Um, I'll try not to babble because there's just so much to talk about on this subject. It's a huge subject, of course. And I want us to get to the panel and the fun of a Q&A and dialogue. So anyway, you guys know what this is? Seven Seal, yeah, Bergman movie. Um, anyway, I just like it. Okay, so, okay. So before I go further, um, I like sort of, this year I've been dedicating talks to David Bowie. As you guys probably know, he died this year. and. Um, yeah, yeah. And the reason, I mean, I love his music, but the, real, the, the bigger reason is because, um, in tribute to him, but also because he, he, he did something really wonderful for us. He, he used his own illness and his own death as uh, grist for his creative mill. You know, his final work was around and about his own death. And I think that's really beautiful for us. That death is not this, uh, it's not or dying or being immortal is not, a, is not opposed to life, it's actually part of, part of life. And that's part of the frame shift we're trying to welcome into this mix. And he showed us that, and he used it in creative ways. I think a lot of us think of death as this anti-creative. It's, it's the lack of creativity, it's a lack of control. But not so, uh, and, he, and he showed us that way. Um, all right, so those of us, who here thinks that, uh, that there's no problem and we die just fine in this society? No one. Cool. Yes. Oh, okay. Um, all right. Any better? Yeah? Okay, I'll use my diaphragm. All right. Um, <laughs> so, all right. So we all agree that, there, that dying is uh, problematic insofar as the structures that we've created around it, the systems issues, are problematic. So we could die better. I think we all in this room seem to believe that. And I would just peg these four, these pillars right here, just to name some things. We won't spend much time on it, but just to name a few things that 
we should direct our attention to. So society, that's us. We have to weigh in on this. Uh, a workforce, we need to train our workforce differently and better. That's absolutely true. And of course, policy needs to suit these changes. And finally, infrastructure. We need to build places, create spaces, etc., cetera, that, um, that welcome and not bastardize this inevitability. All right. Now, I start lectures in general, even when I'm talking to palliative care crowds, about what the heck palliative care is, because it's still so poorly understood. So forgive me for those in your room who, who, who know this well. But this is the definition right out of our, my federal government, the, the Medicare and Medicaid services. And I'll just let you read it for a second. Okay. So it's a mouthful, but it needs to be a mouthful. It's a tough, big subject, right? But look at the let me just call attention to a few things. Patient and family-centered care, that's a big deal right there. So that of us who have spent time in a hospital will know that if the family, there's no space for the family, you know, we kind of, uh, they're kind of tacked on and we give them some attention if we have time. But palliative care says, no, 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 family are part of the unit of care. Uh, family are how we, <laughs> in some ways, how we suffer in our lives, but very much how we, uh, it's also something of an antidote to our suffering. So right out of the chutes, it's sort of novel that families included in definition. And then next on to this quality of life idea and the idea of suffering. All right, so think about how radical that is. Um, other fields in healthcare, cardiology, nephrology, their, uh, oncology, they're named for either body parts or diseases. All right, that's, that's telling. Because that's the experience. Those of us who have been through hospitals, you know that you are a vector for your illness. You are there, <laughs> you are there and somewhat incidental to your disease. And that makes some sense in the acute care setting. But this is a field that has embraced subjectivity because suffering is, I can't, I can't test you for suffering. You, the patient, have to tell me what's, if you're suffering. Okay, that is novel. And one of the reasons I love that is it flips the power dynamic. You, the patient, I, the patient, have a lot to teach my physician rather than the other way around. So if you hang out in a cancer center, they will know, they will know more than the, about, <laughs> about your disease than you will. But they won't know more about you than you do. They don't know what more about what, means, what makes your life worth living. That's, you're the expert. All right? Uh, and then uh, finally, I won't spend much more time on this, but this last phrase, at least in the United States, we had this big debate over death panels it started in 2009, that this idea that the government was going to start deciding who lives and dies. Uh, just to kick back on that, the last word in this definition is choice. Uh, palliative care is all about self-actualization, uh, not us mandating what you can and can't do. All right, and just to further clarify things, this gets confused all the time. So uh, you notice in that definition, there's no definition, there's no mention of time. There's no mention of the clock. Whereas in hospice and end-of-life care, well, there, that is, the clock is in the room. At least in the States, you have six months or less to live, you qualify for hospice, right? If you come to my clinic, at my palliative care clinic, um, I, have, I have patients who are many, many years from death, most likely, and I even have patients who are uh, in remission. They're not even technically sick anymore, but they're still suffering. 
Oftentimes they're suffering from uh, fallout from their disease. They went to war with their cancer. They may have won that war for a time. Now they're meant to go back into the society that they left in the first place to go wage this war. And that's a mind bender. Their identity has changed. And when everyone's celebrating their victory, sometimes, oftentimes, they're quietly struggling. They don't want to go back to that person. They, and they know they're not the same person they were before that war. So just to point out, palliative care has nothing to do. You can be years away from death and still qualify for palliative care. It's a really important point because there are services waiting for us that we don't utilize because we don't understand what they are. That's key. All right, suffering. Anyone want to, def <laughs> Anyone want to define suffering? Any brave soul? It's, who here hasn't suffered? Did you raise your hand? <laughs> okay. <laughs> okay. All right. All right, so the reason I like saying that is because we are all invited to this, this, this mix, right? And it's also important for us as caregivers, as providers. How many neurosurgeons have had brain surgery on themselves? Not that many. How many palliative care clinicians have suffered? Every one of them, all of them. So it invites us bringing ourselves into the mix as clinicians in a very different way, all right? So I'll just say suffering... Uh, there are different ways to, to define it. My, the way I like to think of it is it's a wedge. It's a wedge that, that is a separation in us. It's the divide between the world, the reality we have, and the reality we want. And you, know, there's, you could find, think of zillions of examples of that in your life. And the reason I also like that definition is it tells us what our choices are. So one choice is just, okay, in a sort of a Buddhist tradition, a contemplative tradition, quit trying to change your reality. Come to terms with the reality you have. Um, the suffering comes from trying to change it. So that's one uh, approach, very difficult to do. The other approach is, you don't like your reality? Well, change it, change the world. Um, that's also very hard to do. I think most of us uh, do a little bit of both. Um, so anyway, there's suffering in a nutshell. But, uh, uh, importantly, and why this field is inherently interdisciplinary is because uh, no one discipline, no one train of thought has a lock on what it means to suffer. So we have chaplaincy, we have social work, we have volunteers, we have medicine, we have nurses, we have music thanatologists, we have, uh, and, and frankly, that list should be much longer. All right, and then I will just say that I snuck on this, you see that lower right hand, I snuck this word logistical suffering on there uh, because I see it all the time. I, I spend a lot of time in my clinic apologizing to my patients for the healthcare system. That the things that we have created, this is the mind bender, we, we, we are duty bound to quell suffering and yet we are working a system that causes suffering. This is singularly demoralizing and a big cause of burnout in the field. Um, the good news is though, of course, because we created this system well, it's an invention, we can invent something better. So I think in a way, that's kind of what we're talking about tonight. So just to call that out. All right, now the rest of these slides, guys, again, I'll try not to talk too long, um, are just provocations, just food for thought, all right? So one way of thinking of why, how, why healthcare has sort of gone astray, and at least in the United States, it feels like we're in a, a reckoning. And I think that reckoning has to do with coming to terms with the limitations of medicine. Um, and understanding that, okay, well maybe the idea of focusing everything on the disease was misplaced. Maybe we should focus on what it means to be a human being who happens to have a disease. 
That shift, if we could make that happen, I think would solve a lot of our problems. And I don't mean this in a markety, buzz phrase way. It, it, it seems very real, it seems very well placed. You've probably heard your doctor say, or you've seen it on TV, someone say, I'm sorry, Mrs. Jones, there's nothing more we can do. Well, that may be true in terms, if their orientation is around the disease, but if their orientation is around them as a human being and their dignity and their joy and their experience, well, of course, there's always something more we can do. And at least in the States, we've divided the medical world from the social world. That's a false divide. If we're focusing on the person, those things come together. You go to an emergency room in the United States or any hospital, I'm sure here too, you will find people who are there for social reasons and medical reasons. We don't parse these out in ourselves. It's a false divide. And again, this is part of our reorientation. This is part of our coming to terms with the failings of our system, which is a sort of a conceptual failing. Okay, more, bre more provocations. Sorry, this seems obvious, but it needs to be said. Dying people are still living, <laughs> okay? And it also calls out our, um, I think for the most part, most of my patients are not afraid to be dead. They're afraid of the suffering that dying implies, all right? And we can understand that suffering. I cannot tell you anything about being dead. I can tell you something about dying. All right, death comes to the body. So a lot of us have different belief systems. Um, I've heard people talk about, you know, no birth, no death. Uh, there's a big Buddhist thread, and I've been around for some of my career there. But I think we can all agree that de th this body will die. Um, and I think that's a, a nice re, uh, again, another frame shift for us. And the reason I like that as well, and again, I'm not separating body from mind. Hopefully that's old fashioned nowadays. The reason I like that too is what is the joy of having a body? Um, well, part of the joy is just moving yourself in space and feeling things. That's one of the sort of interesting things of having a body, and we should probably tend to those things. All right. You know, you guys, whenever you, when you hear someone say, the, the homeless, the poor, uh, whatever it is, the dying. I do it too, I mean, in fairness. But usually that's a little tip. The, they're, they're, they've separated themselves. They're saying, I'm not the they. Heidegger used to use this language, the they. The, those guys are something other than myself. So we catch ourselves when we hear the dying. Ugh, I'm, hard, <laughs> I'm sorry to tell you, you guys, we are the dying. I hope that's not surprising to you guys. Um, but the good news is, for all of us involved in this work, is because it's so darn personal, if we were wondering, what, boy, what is important at the end of life? Well, we just have to ask ourselves that question. And this gives us the lattice work for empathy as, as front and center, as part of our job, is to be empathic or empathetic. I'm not sure the difference. Um, and this gives us a way to be empathetic, right? We are mortal beings. If we clinicians weren't mortal beings and we're tending to be poor mortal beings, that would be a very different dynamic. All right, uh, healing versus curing. This is a big one. Medicine has been really galvanized around curing. It's really exciting when you can cure something, you can fix something. The problem comes when you can't. Again, that's the moment of aban the abandonment moment. I'm sorry, there's nothing more we can do. Well, so curing isn't always possible. Okay, let's keep up that fight. I'm all for it. But healing, if that's our goal, that is something that seems much more possible, something much more accessible, in part because 
that's up to us. That's, a, that's an internal process. You know, I, we can call doctors healers, but to, and we can facilitate and we can be involved, but really, it's, that's an internally derived process. So someone can be well beyond cure, but be healed. I've, dying people can be whole at the end of their life, right? That whole and healing is the same root. Dismembered people can be whole. You know, that is a, it's a, a vision of ourselves in the world that has, a, that's, that is a subjective plane, all right? And it's possible, always. All right, things change. I want to build, if we're going to revisit the healthcare system, I think building in uh, a dexterity and agility into it is really key. Um, in part because if we're really following people around, people's minds change. We know that at the end of life, as people get closer to death, their minds change more rapidly. Where they want to be, what's important to them, what they're willing to do, what they're willing to not do. So we have to bob and weave with people. Um, advanced directives, very, very important stuff. State your wishes. But it's also true you have to be willing to change those wishes. It's not a one-time event. You don't just state your wishes, put them on a form, stick it on the shelf, and you're done with it. It's a conversation over time. And we need to stick with people over time beyond that episode of care. Okay, this is, I think the only thing that I'm saying is an opinion. Um, I just, I've heard my patients tell me this, and I think I have felt this, that there are worse things in life than death. Probably a good time to ask my favorite question. Hi, Rose. Um, uh, my favorite question is a cheap one. So if you could push a button and live forever, would you push the button? Anyone who would, raise their hand. You've raised your hand this time. Okay, good. So maybe five. What is that, 1% or something? 2% of the... Okay. Brave souls. Um, and I don't mean to shame you guys. Uh, but my point here is, geez, death, we talk about death as like our big enemy. It's what we, we're fighting. Well, actually, at some point, not really. That's not the wrong... It's not... At some point, we even welcome death. So again, part of this reorientation is, uh, is getting our, our terms right and naming things well. Um, okay, choice. I think I've watched myself talking with patients who are running out of choices, and I spastically look for choices to give them. Um, we often, this gets us into big, big trouble for a couple reasons. We will often offer choices that aren't real choices. That is a new form of negligence as far as I'm concerned in medicine. I watch my colleagues and I've watched myself do that a lot. False choices is no choice. And we just suspend the real drama. And we set these sort of charade side fires that, that just distract us. And the other thing about this slide I also mean is, you know, at some point choice is annoying. And I've watched it in my patients, just at the end, if you're exhausted, I don't want to be handed a menu of choices, especially false ones. Um, so I think we should be careful about that, that concept. And finally, uh, you know, illness, dis who here has never been sick, right? I mean, uh, disability, aging, these are normal processes. We get into trouble, we, we talk about pathology, uh, disease and illness is pathological. Well, that's fine on a slide, histologically, if you're looking under a microscope. You've got the cancer slide, you've got the normal slide. But I, as a person with cancer, or I, as a disabled person, I'm not pathological. I'm a normal human being having normal things happen to me. This is why we've gotten in such trouble with the disability community. 
we've, by extension, we've treated them as pathological for having these anomalous diseases. They're not anomalous. They're variation, variations on themes we all go through. Okay, another sort of reorientation. Okay, here's my favorite slide. Meant to be this way. It's not a mistake. If we're really seriously you know, revisit this system, we have to make new space for mystery, not knowing. You know, there's some real beauty in not knowing. In medicine and science, I think we call it ignorance and uh, we crowd it out. You gotta work harder, think more, read more. Uh, okay, to a point. But if you read every book there ever was, studied every patient that's ever been, you would still not know a lot. And I don't think that's a problem, frankly. We'll see, if someday we are able to know everything, it would be interesting, I'd, maybe I'd vote for that. But meanwhile, I'm very happy to look up at the stars and say, whoa, I don't get it, but wow, I'm part of something way bigger than me. And I see that in my patients too. That sense of wonder uh, is beautiful and comforting, can be. Um, and also to us clinicians in the room, it's a nod to remind ourselves when we go in and we meet new patients, to not, you know, sometimes when we hand patients off, we'll say, ah, yeah, well, you know, Mr. Smith, yeah, that guy, he's really angry, or, you know, oh, he's a malingerer, you know, he loves his pain meds, you know, whatever. And so before you've even met Mr. Smith, you walk in there with all these preformed opinions about poor Mr. Smith. Well, maybe he's asking for more meds because we've been under-treating his pain, you know, or whatever. So protecting in us this not-knowing space is really vital. Quality of life, I just mentioned this again to draw our attention to the subjective nature of this. You guys, let's, let's decide what constitutes quality of life. I would say this about the healthcare system. So most of us end up in a hospital because something's gone wrong, because we're suffering, we're struggling, something's amiss. Okay, and our, the, if we can mitigate suffering, that's wonderful, that's great news, that's a lot. But I would just encourage us to raise our sights just a little further, even still, that we would, our goal is not to just make less, life less crappy, but at least a window into making it more wonderful or more mysterious. That just seems like a, a little better arc for us as a system. And the reason I like that too, by the way, is quality of life, if, that, if we're serious about that, philosophy, the arts, design, all of a sudden have a welcome place in this conversation. Okay, I'm almost done with these slides, guys, but I will, these are, this is from California Healthcare Foundation. These are issues that Californians said were important to them at the end of life. One thing on this slide that's important is, <clears throat> look how few of these things have anything to do with medicine. Okay, issue one. Issue two is this thing. Being a burden, it came up, uh, I didn't give you enough time to read that slide, but it's a couple times, the language is a couple times on that slide. So being a burden, I see this in people a lot. You know, they just don't want to be a burden to their family or whatever else it is, and of course we don't. I will say, I, my response is a couple things besides, yeah, it's a real phenomenon, but for us as a society, I would challenge us to say, A, um, if burden has something to do with lack of purpose or lack of meaning, well, we gotta get a lot better at repurposing ourselves. Um, that is a dynamic phenomenon, purpose, meaning, all right? So, uh, and we were just talking about this yesterday. So think about a nursing home, all the wisdom that's just languishing there. That we just, we've just sort of shuffled it aside. What a shame for all of us. So uh, option one, let's get, or 
Rule number one, let's get better at repurposing ourselves. So idea number two is that, wow, okay, uh, being a burden, that just means you're taking from things, you're not giving something, you're on the receiving end. And being a patient, you sort of lie there and all these people gather around you and are doing these things to you and for you. And boy, part of the shame and the difficulty of being a patient is you're just, it's hard to feel like you're participating at all. I would say that for a lot of us, receiving care, uh, being, letting ourselves be loved, be cared for, is actually really hard. And it's a muscle that we don't exercise very well, especially in the caring health professions. We are the ones who care. We're not the ones who get cared for. And I've seen folks who have not have that asymmetry in their musculature, then when it's their time to receive care, they're terrible at it. <laughs> and they're just really bad at it. And they just, that's, they're, like, they're the ones who go very quickly to, I don't wanna be a burden. So we should probably, and by the way, just re- giving care, uh, just giving love and never receiving it is ha- my idea of thing would be a half a life. So we should get over this phenomenon. It's part of a deal. We give and we take, and there are asymmetries in our life. Sometimes we can give more. Sometimes we need to take more. Um, and then the last point about this being a burden is is okay. Purposelessness, mean, uh, meaning, purpose, very important. But I also this is a shout out for meaninglessness, purposelessness. I'm all for it. When I think about the things that really get me through my day, I don't have great meaning. Uh, playing with my dog, I'm not sure there's a great meaning to that or a great, that serving some great purpose, but boy, does it thrill me. Again, looking at the stars, uh, wind and my hair, riding my bike. If someone told me riding my bike was bad for me, I'd still do it. I'm not doing it for health reasons, and I'm not doing it just to get from point A to point B. It's just so, the gyroscope feeling is so fun. So, I don't know, meaning it doesn't enter into it. That's this, this aesthetic plane, this, this sensation for its own sake, being for its own sake is really potent and I think we should really uptick that as a society. We should honor that. Otherwise, we're just, we keep playing into this, we are utilitarian beings and you peak when you're middle age and then it's just a process of getting out of the way. Mm. Okay, last slide guys, I've probably gone more than 20 minutes, my apologies. Um, last slide, this is a, a, a painting called Et in Arcadia Ego. Uh, 16th century, Poussin painting, and these guys, this is a, a sarcophagus, et in arcadia ego, Latin meaning I too exist in paradise. And that's what it says on this sar- sarcophagus. So these guys are wandering around Eden, paradise. What the hell is death doing here? Well, I think, I think the idea here, the lesson is that death is part of how we experience paradise. Death belongs in paradise too. Just think of the hell that would be if we live forever anyway. So back to this, okay, I'm not asking that we just embrace and love death, but boy, appreciating for what it does for us and our ability to experience living because someday we die is profound, I think. Okay, time for the panel. Sorry, guys, for going on so long. Stay there? Yeah. Okay. Uh, thanks, BJ. You can take a seat if you like, and I'll introduce our panelists who are going to come out now. That was a fascinating survey of, I guess, what are some of the, the cultural, the physical, the spiritual, the emotional, the psychological dimensions of uh, what it is to be a person facing and contemplating death and dying, uh, and the subjects of suffering and pain, too. Um, so if um, Kate and Rod and you would like to come forward, I'll introduce uh, Rod and Kate to the panel and take a seat.
they come to. Yeah. So Professor Kate White uh, is a professor of nursing at the University of Sydney. Kate has worked in clinical education and research areas specialising in cancer and palliative care throughout her career. Her major research interests include supportive care in cancer and palliative care and psychosocial and quality of life issues in cancer. To Kate's left is Professor Rod McLeod. Rod is a senior staff specialist in palliative care at Hammond Care in Sydney and is also conjoint professor in palliative care at the University of Sydney's Northern Clinical School. He was appointed a member of the New Zealand Order of Merit in the Queen's Birthday Honours in 2015 for his services to palliative medicine and patient care. So we do have roving mics, is that right, in the room? Um, now would be a great time for you to think about what you want to ask to put your hand up and we'll get a microphone to you and please when you have a question and you then have the mic in your hand then we'll get your, you to speak and ask the question. Don't ask the question beforehand or we won't pick up. Um, while that's happening, Rod, I might just put a question to you that was provoked by something BJ said about um, maybe the difference between suffering and pain. Can you talk a little bit about that? Because we heard what suffering is, but yeah, I, I, I there's a distinction. I, I quite often use Eric Cassell's idea of suffering, whereby if you think of us as being integrated people, we've got lots of different parts, the physical part, the psychological part, the social part, the spiritual part, the sexual part, the financial part, whatever, all joined together. And I think, as I read his work, the idea is that when one or other of those begins to peel away, that's when suffering, it may be your wedge coming down there. And part of what palliative care aims to do is to try to reintegrate people, try to put back what we can put back. The difficulty is you can, you can have suffering uh, without pain and you can have pain without suffering. The story that I most like telling was of a, a, an old lady who came to see me in the clinic and she had, she had really destructive arthritis, she'd had lots of operations to replace joints and because of her treatment she developed a primary bone cancer. So you can imagine these joints crunching bone on bone now she's got a cancer in her bones and she came to me for management of her pain and I said to her are you suffering and she said oh yes and then I said well can you tell me about that because like you I don't want to make an assumption it's not I don't know what her suffering is and she said yeah my son went out sailing seven years ago on Christmas Eve and never came back that's my suffering so that compared to the destruction of her body was immense. She didn't really mind that much about the pain that she had. We could deal with that pain, but the pain of loss that she was experiencing year on year about not knowing where her son was, was still part of her suffering. I couldn't reintegrate that for her. And so the, the World Health Organization definition of suffering talks about the relief of suffering. I think it's a bit of a cheat myself because there are an awful lot of sufferings that we either we don't have a right to stop or we can't. I think for myself, you know, perhaps my suffering, I don't know, <coughs> I've got three grandchildren and if I was to be told that I would be dead in six months, my suffering would relate to not seeing them achieve their potential. Nothing any of you in this room could do about that. It would be 
that bit of me had peeled off. You could manage my pain, but you couldn't manage that loss. So I think that's, that's a story that you might remember to differentiate between pain and suffering. Thank you. So uh, is there anyone in this room who's got a burning question to ask? Right here. Thank you. And if you have another, if there's someone else, there's another mic over there. Hi, um, I'm a chaplain. Um, and my, I was thinking throughout, my thoughts have been profoundly influenced by a book called Die Wise by a man named Stephen Jenkinson. And um, one of his suggestions in the book is that um, like grief, death is not something that happens to us, but something that we can do um, and participate in as meaning makers. Um, but I don't, I, I agree with that, but I don't know if that we can do it alone. And I think we, if we are participating in our own death or are dying, we need a group um, around us, like a palliative care team, but in other ways, um, maybe we could be talking about death and dying um, a lot sooner in our lives as a conversation of how do we, um, because we can say, oh, we know we're all dying, but do we really know it? Um, and I think, it, how do you imagine we could start to have that conversation earlier in, in our culture and what its implications would be? There's a great organization in Britain called Dying Matters. And one of their, their ideas was that uh, whenever you had a dinner party, they would provide you with a, a pad with a tear-off slip. And you would hand out these things to everybody at your dinner party. And it was, the idea was that you would look at some of these things to identify topics to talk about around the table, which relate to death and dying. And then you could take it home and talk with your family about it. I, I think if you start talking to children, so death education in schools is, is what we should be doing. Death education in colleges, I, you know, I, palliative care doesn't get a big look in in, in, in uh, medical training. And even when it does, the, the classes aren't full like they are for, you know, how to manage oogly googly disease because it's, it's much more interesting when you're a medical student to manage oogly googly disease than it is to begin to think about the fact that actually in medicine what you're doing is managing people. It's the relationship stuff. So getting people to talk really early on about all those aspects, talking about it in the workplace. What happens in the workplace when somebody dies? Everybody just shuts up probably. Those are opportunities to talk about it. But you know, having somebody like BJ who can reach a huge audience, millions of people, and of those millions who've seen that talk, they'll be talking to 10 people, 20 people each, and so then it begins to go. The fact that there's 400 and odd people here tonight is enormously cheering to me because it means that people are interested in doing something in a different way. And that's what you're suggesting. But just have those, look at Dying Matters website and get some ideas. Can I add to, just real quick, I think if our eyes are wide open, you don't have to look very far. Death is happening all around us. And including death, you know, loss, uh, you know, it, it, if we were just talking about this, if we reignite the fact that we are creatures of nature too, animals die, I mean, th there's just proof all over the place. So I don't think we actually have to look that hard uh, 
to do what you're suggesting. And, and I'm with you, Rod. We are, there's a lot to be optimistic about. Again, the fact that we're all here together tonight. I want to bring Kate White into the conversation now before the next question. Kate, it seems like a deceptively simple question, but what does it mean to care for someone and what does it mean to be cared for? Something I think BJ touched on. Uh, as, a, as a family member or, or as a um, health professional? Yes. Oh. <laughs> it's not letting me All off. All of the above. Um, yeah, you're right. Easy, easy, easy question to ask, hard one to answer. Um, I think as a carer, you know, one of the things we in healthcare know is that we actually couldn't provide the, the care that individuals need without carers, whether they're direct family or extended friends. Um, and people, uh, no matter how hard it is, they want to do that. Um, there's some lovely work that was done a few years ago and I think the title of the work was something like The Hardest Thing I've Ever Done, which was actually looking at, you know, carers' experience of caring for a loved one at home. And they talked about all the difficulties and that occasionally the word burden got used. Um, but the fundamental thing that underpinned it was it's the hardest thing I've ever done, it was the best thing I've ever done. And they did not want that opportunity taken away from them. And I think that's one of the things we need to think about in the conversations we have around things like burden. Um, and on a slightly personal level, I have an 87-year-old mother with me at the moment who's not well, and she keeps saying to me, I'm a pest, I I'm just a problem to you. And I have sat down and yelled because she's profoundly deaf. So everyone in the street called Bogan Street hears this conversation. You know, so mum, when I was born and you told me that I vomited all the time, was I a burden to you? You know, that, she goes, oh no, but gee, you did vomit a lot. You know, <laughs> um, it, it, you know we get something back from doing that, from having that responsibility. A colleague has just had her husband die and in her email that she communicated to us, she described that last week. Um, and uh, my, my colleague is a statistician, so it's not a health professional in that context, but she talks about the things they did in that last week. And what you can feel in that was that sense of pride and achievement, because right up until the last 24 hours, she had cared for someone that she felt very um, loved dearly, but she had cared for them at home with complicated medical conditions and in that last week they'd gone to their last concert at the Opera House and it was his favourite piece of music. And when I met her this week, it's eight weeks since he died, there is a sense of what she achieved for him that is helping her with her grief and bereavement. And often when we're talking about the immediate period we're not thinking about, you know, the after and how that can be the thing that sustains us in that acute loss. For carers, as in the context of healthcare professionals, um, I think we've got major challenges and, and I was really struck by a couple of the things that have been said already tonight and I think one of the things that we don't really address in our uh, education preparation for health professionals is that whole concept of suffering as not something that we have to take away but how do we walk along with it. And I think in that context, it's not just about being comfortable with someone who may be experiencing suffering, but it's 
if our day-to-day -day work every day is that we are immersed in other people's suffering to the extent that that starts to become normal for us, or is immersed in the everyday experiences associated with illness, how do we as a health professional stay tuned in to the individual and not recognise that for them that's abnormal, but it's become our normality? And I don't think we've grappled with that, and that's not about palliative care or cancer, that's about whether you're working in cardiology or, you know, aged care, those things. How do we manage that is what's critical. When I was doing my PhD, I asked people who were dying if their doctor cared for them. About half of them said yes. The other half said no, no, it doesn't really. But the ones that, I, that said yes, I said, how do you know? Because I'm meant to teach medical students about care. And, uh, and the commonest answer then was, is to do with the look in their eyes. So that tells you two things, really. Well, a lot, it tells you a lot of things, but add that to the fact when I ask uh, patients who are sick, what's different between us as palliative care doctors and the other doctors you see? What they often say is you're not afraid. So we're not afraid to look death in the eye, we're not afraid to look life in the eye. And as you say, engaging with people, not being frightened of their suffering and, and holding it, going with it. That's part of the reimagining, I think, is, is not being afraid, not turning away. The reason that I think a lot of older people get shoveled off into residential care facilities is because we're afraid to see them. And we're, as you say, they, they have this huge amount of wisdom and knowledge that we can learn. And we can ask them, how, how do you want us to care for you? I mean, that's, that's the question that the students need to learn. What, what is it about you that you can tell me that will enable me to care for you better? How do you want to be cared for? That's, it's not you coming into our place and, and this is how we're going to care for you. The difference, the change needs to be, oh, you know, what do you want us to do for you? I think that's the, that's the big seat change. Thank you. Uh, uh, question? Yeah. Yes, thank you. Yes, and this might be the elephant in the room, but um, what do you feel it's time for a change of the law to allow physician-assisted suicide? There's a quite a bit of evidence from places like Switzerland and Netherlands that just having it available is an enormous relief to a lot of people. And when, even when they get through the final hurdle, they decide not to go through it, but they feel enormously relieved to know that it's available. Who wants to well, take the No. <laughs> <laughs> You go. Well, it's a, so I, there's a much, this is a big, big subject. I will just say, um, and it's coming up in California right now, so assisted dying has just come online in California as of June. So it's, I'm, I'm very curious to see how this plays out. I, I just sort of, it's a call for me, I just want to, it's a call for proportionality. Uh, to, to, so in, in the states where this has been legal, Oregon, for example, the percentage of deaths that uh, in, in enroll in this uh, legislature, in this, this end, this death, is 0.4% of deaths per year, okay? So I just wanna, but it is a very loud subject. Uh, and I think it's so loud because if it's not practically that important, it is symbolically extremely important. It, and I think symbolically it has to do with two things. One is, 
okay, medicine, we, we know you have limits. Can you guys acknowledge you have limits too? There are limitations to what medical science can do. Can you just be honest about that? That's point the first. The second point I think is really, um, hey, it's this reorientation back to the person actually doing the suffering and doing the dying as being the lead. You know, whose life is this anyway? Whose body is this anyway? So I think I just, I'll just lay that out. And I, lastly, from a legislative point of view, at least in California, I really, really wish that the law had come online with also a wing of the, uh, having to do with access to palliative care. So if we bless this in people, this end in people, because they're suffering in so many ways that we just can't tend to, well, we have a field devoted to mitigating suffering that does not reach nearly the number of people who need it. So why aren't we talking, why is there no outcry about access to palliative care? So that, that's my answer to your question. <laughs> I, uh, I agree with that entirely. I think the, the challenge for society is to create an environment where people who are um, suffering or tired of life uh, don't get discarded and don't feel that they're, they're in the way. Um, I think in, in Australia and New Zealand, we do an awful lot of hand-wringing, uh, justifiably so, about the number of people who commit suicide on their own. What we know from four of the American states is that when you le legislate for assisted suicide or physician-assisted dying or whatever euphemism you want to call it, the overall suicide rate goes up because it becomes more acceptable. Society accepts killing yourself as being more normal. So is that, is that what Australian society wants to have? Or do we want to have a compassionate society which wraps around people who feel that their life is desperate and they want to end it? You have to ask the questions, well, why, why are those people feeling so marginalised and, and alone? Our role, one of the New Zealand Prime Ministers a long time ago, not one of the recent ones, said uh, you can judge a society by the way it cares for its most sick and vulnerable. How, how do we shape up here or across the Tasman. I'm not, I'm not entirely sure that we could uh, pat ourselves on the back yet. I think, uh, whilst I didn't hear that question, I think the answer is the same. My question was the same. How does euthanasia fit into palliative care? So I think that's been taken care of. Thank you. Is there someone else with a mic who's ready to ask a question? Thank you. I'd like to contest the uh, claim that the 0.4% figure in origin in, uh, in the US represents uh, or, dis or displays a lack of demand for euthanasia. When you look at uh, two things, firstly, in Europe the numbers are up to 4 to 5% in some countries and still growing. But this reflects a regime where, which is much less restrictive. In, origin, in Oregon, you have to be uh, terminally ill. You have to be within six months of dying. You have to overcome all sorts of procedural hurdles. You have to be a resident of the state, uh, et cetera, et cetera. So uh, uh, if you compare that to the European situation, I don't think the 0.4% in any way represents the actual demand 
for euthanasia. Uh, second point. Thank you. I'm going to take that as a comment, as Tony Jones said, unless you have a question to put now. Do you yes. have a question? Yes. Okay. Well, I'm, I'm contesting that, so I'm asking you all. I understand. I'm taking it as a comment. Yes. I'm asking, okay. do you have a question now? Uh, no further speeches, please. All right. Uh, so, again, I would like uh, the panel to comment on the notion which came up that uh, death makes, gives meaning to life. And I would like to uh, hear the views of the panel on that, on that argument. Must be my turn. Um, I think, you know, I think... So I've worked in palliative care for many years. Um, I've been actively involved in debates around euthanasia and palliative care. And I think where the point that I've come to is it narrows down the discussion, that it's an either-or, not, a, not a, a spectrum. And I think where I come from is in a, in a forum like this, you know, we all have our beliefs and we bring those to us and we're entitled to those. But where's the opportunity to think beyond the either and the or? And I think that's what I was really picking up from BJ's conversation. You know, where does the opportunity for creativity come into it? I'm not saying no to one or the other, but let's go beyond that and let's go beyond seeing this conversation occur solely when someone's considered to be having a terminal illness. You know, if you've got chronic congestive failure with an unknown prognosis, how often do those individuals get a conversation that actually enables them to understand what the next step might be and then have a conversation about, well, what would you like to do? These are the treatment options, but if we did A and B. So it seems to me that we narrow it down all the time when what we've got to do is take a step back and think about possibility. I, I, I agree entirely with that, and I think that, that issue of choice is very important. But I have to say that I've been working in palliative medicine for 27 years, so that's many thousands of people. I've had one man in that time who's persisted in his request for euthanasia. And each day I would ask him, would it be today? And he'd say, no, but it might be tomorrow though. And, and I think it's that idea of having a choice, having a way of doing something. What we do in palliative care is to try to rekindle hope. Because oftentimes when people come to see us, first of all, they are hopeless. They may have heard the doctor saying, there's nothing more I can do, or, and, and interpreted that as their situation being hopeless. But of course, that's clearly nonsense. Because everybody can have something to hope for, even if it's to hope for three hours without pain, or to feel this, well, I can't feel the wind in my hair because it's gone, but, <laughs> but feeling the sun on your back, or, or having the person with that you, yes, with factor 50, but, uh, or feeling the, the person that you love holding you in their arms. There are all sorts of things that people can hope for. I know it sounds a little bit twee, but actually when it comes down to it and you've got a few days left to live, those are the things that matter. It doesn't matter whether who, who's going to be the next president of the United States. What matters is what's in that immediate world. And we can, in palliative care, we can facilitate that by asking and making sure we know. I think a lot of places in Europe that I know of, uh, 
where, where euthanasia uh, happens, the palliative care services aren't necessarily involved. They are in some countries, I'll, I'll grant that, but oftentimes the, the palliative care services are reduced. And I think we need to push to increase that before we have the next conversation about ending people's lives. I want to ask the panel a little bit more about hope and if there is in fact maybe a dark side to hope um, that drives, and you touched on it, that, that can drive endless amounts of chemo and surgery and radio and all of the rest of it and we go to war with our disease. Um, is hope always a good thing? Can you talk a little bit about that and how it can drive mm. intervention? Well, okay, I'll, I'll start. Um, yeah, yes, I think hope, like so many things, can be, is, can be used for good or ill. Uh, what I learned in my own training and I find very useful and Roger's pointing to is, well, you have to qualify hope. hope. Hope for what? So hope is not this monolith that you either have or you do not have. And a quick aside before I forget, we've asked American oncologists why they don't tell the full truth to their patients. And the number one response is, well, I don't want to take away their hope, um, which is really a sad statement in a lot of ways. And my job is to not give or take hope away. Um, but hope needs to be qualified. So when I hear someone say hope, the immediate thought is hope for what? Uh, hope, to, you know, when I ask my patients this question, they say, well, I want to hope, I hope to beat my stage four cancer. I say, well, you know what? I'm going to hope for a miracle too. But I'll call it a miracle. You know, this, but you know, if that doesn't happen, what else might you hope for? Oh. Well, if it's not going to happen, well, I hope to make it to my daughter's graduation next month, or I hope for one last meal, or whatever it is. And pretty soon, with a little bit more conversation and dialogue, you get to something that's both realistic, possible, and is actually a life-giving force, a compelling force, not one that squishes people uh, with its lack of uh, uh, touch to reality. I think for most of us who are well, Hope's a long way away. You know, we look out into the future for our hopes. We, you know, we hope it's going to be a good summer. We hope my, you know, I hope my grandchildren do well at school and all of that sort of stuff. When we're looking after people who are near the end of their life, it's like you've got to turn the binoculars around and bring everything really up close. And so a question that a clever nurse told me, every day she goes in to see the person that she's caring for and says, what do you hope for today? And I think that's a really key question. It may be, I hope that I can get out and sit in the chair, or I hope that my granddaughter comes. It's not a hope that the Wallabies are going to win a rugby game. Hey. <laughs> I mean, hope has always got to be realistic, hasn't it? Settle. <laughs> he can leave now. Hopeless. Um, <laughs> but again, it, it goes back, it's not what we hope for people. It's what they hope for themselves. So yeah. BJ set the whole agenda for this whole discussion by saying we've just got to flip everything around and, and create a system which works for the person themselves. They're in control if they want it. If they want to give it away, then they give it away. It's like a conductor of an orchestra with the baton. They're the one with the baton. They say when the trumpets blow. If they want to hand the baton on to somebody else, that's fine. But they're in charge. The baton is here, and then we'll go to you. Yeah. Oh, thank you. Thank you, everybody. I wanted to talk about choice. I'm a palliative care social worker, have been for 20 years. 
one of the things I've watched happen is um, people lose the choice to have a long stay in an inpatient palliative care unit, what we used to call hospice, but we don't use that language anymore. And one of the things the patients often ask about is how long can they stay? And they hope to be able to stay, to be cared for in the way they're enjoying being cared for. And I just wonder how you, the panel feels in, um, in Australia anyway, we can address that changing you know, face of how people receive their end of life care if being at home isn't an option. I think uh, that's where the creativity comes in. Um, I understand exactly where you're coming from because that has been a, you know, that awful experience of when you're making a referral and you're asked, can you guarantee that this patient will only live for 30 days? Um, oh, it's getting worse. Um, there's a couple of things. I think there's some really creative ways of supporting people at home where we can reduce the burden and I know um, Rod can talk to that and there's different models of that. Using um, care assistance at home that actually enables people to be in an environment. But I'm actually also struck, I mean we've talked a little bit about Europe tonight. There's some really creative things occurring in Europe. And, and one of the ones in, I don't know if any of you have seen the work that's been done in the Netherlands, where they actually have university accommodation embedded into aged care facilities. So they're co-located. Um, and uh, it, it's quite a creative way for a number of reasons. One is these young university students start to learn about loss. And they talk about, you know, are realising that people are dying. But they take on a very different role as members of a community where they see that they have something to do to help those people. I think we don't use volunteers in any way the way we should. I mean, there are people that um, could, who bring skills that are not traditional caring skills, but bring a different set of skills that enables them to support a family. And I think that's the other point that I would make, is that the role of palliative care or hospice is not to replace family. Our role is to support family. And we have to be really conscious of how we do that. Um, and if we can get the support for family through a whole range of creative strategies, imagine having a unit at high school where students were taught how to help and support someone at home or support a family. You know, and it's not necessarily that they would need to be providing direct personal care, but maybe they're helping out in the home and learning how to be in that environment. Um, so to me, they're the sorts of things that we need to start to look at. Yeah, so Hammond Care is in a consortium with Sacred Heart and Calvary, and we work, the AIM, Minister Skinner gave quite a lot of money in New South Wales to uh, enable more enable more people to um, be at home if that's what they wanted because the figures say that maybe 70 or 80 percent of people want to die at home 14 to 16 percent managed it so what we've done with our program is to train care workers so these are not registered nurses they're, they're, they're people who spend their lives going into people's homes and supporting them just by really by being human and we train them for a couple of days uh, on aspects of end-of-life care. And these, all people who volunteered for the program, 
And of 1,700 people that our group has cared for, with the GPs and the community palliative care nurses, 73% have managed to stay at home. So change from 14% to 73%, just by utilising, creating a bigger workforce using these amazing people who might have been bus drivers or wool graders or librarians or accountants and they just decided that they want to provide care. And I think we, the, just in addition to that, I think we have to recognise the neighbourhood. You know, yeah. we need to think about our community. Yeah. Um, gentleman across the road from where I live in an inner city suburb, like any other inner city suburb, he was dying of colorectal cancer. Um, his wife, when someone said, what can we do to help? And she said, I can't manage the meals. So we had a roster that went for eight months, wasn't quick, um, where there was meals provided. Everyone knew each around the two blocks, you only ever had to do it once or twice a month. The only rule was you left it in the fridge, which we put in the garage, so that she didn't have to deal with all the inquiries. Um, and it couldn't be spaghetti bolognese <laughs> because that got overdone. So took one person who coordinated all of that. Each month you came round and you put it in. That played such a significant role in yeah. enabling her to care for her person at home. They're the sorts of conversations that we need to be having about how do we support someone to die at home. It's not just about what we as professionals do, but how do we build that community where um, we educate people of the things that you can do. You know, leave the basket of ironing on the front porch and when you can, you know, I'll take it away. By the way, I live at Bogan Street. If anybody wants to um, pick up my basket of ironing, Can it's I very high. <laughs> Only if it goes, someone else does it. Do you know what I mean? Like, you know, we've, we've become kind of insular. We look yeah. to health professionals, we look to institutions. Let's really look out there um, much broader and say, how can we make our communities and society more engaged where we have that sense of community like you do in the country? But that's one of the things that's missing in palliative care in Australia, if I might say. In Britain and in uh, New Zealand, certainly, that's my only experience, the communities support the hospices. They have to because they, they fundraise. But they don't just fundraise, they do people's gardens, they drive them around, they cook, they clean, they do all of those things. So ideally, what I hope Hammond Care does and other places is to build some hospices because that's what we need for the people who can't go home. Um, and, that, and I think that's the answer. The other large group, probably about a third of the people in this room at least, will die in a residential care facility. And that's the real uh, kind of Cinderella of end of life care, because you might have one or two nurses looking after 40 or 50 people. So the packages of care that I was telling you about earlier on, they can go into residential facilities. People can go and support somebody to stay because that's their home. But I think we've got to get... The, what Kate was talking about is hugely important, getting the community, but the community needs to involve itself in the care home too and find out what we can do to enable people to have a, a good enough time at the end of their life in those facilities, not just sit rocking in a chair watching um, Deal or No Deal or whatever it is that's on the telly. 
We have a question up here. Um, why do you think some doctors are occasionally reluctant to get the palliative care team involved? And do you have any suggestions for how we might advocate for early connection with the palliative care team? Yeah, it's a problem. I, I, I think it's multi-headed. First of all, I mean, that's why I start these, any talk with defining palliative care because I, it's, a lot of people I know who are in healthcare just don't understand what the heck palliative care is. So I think that's a huge piece of the puzzle. Then from there, I think a lot of docs um, say, well, I don't need palliative care. I, you know, I take care of my patient's pain. I care about my patients, you know. Um, and to some degree, true enough. I mean, I think it's also worth noting that it, it would be, a, I hope that someday palliative care is irrelevant as a specialty. That should be our goal. Speaking of euthanasia, we should plan our own obsolescence as is a field. Because ideally, this is just good care. The trick is we are involved in a corrective because we got lost as a healthcare system and palliative care does need to exist as a specialty to reorient us. Hopefully that correction will be made and we'll all live happily ever after. Um, but meanwhile, I do think it's a lack of understanding and I do think otherwise it's a sort of, an, uh, to some degree, some amount of arrogance among my colleagues to think that they can do it all. And there's this, we just keep driving this heroic thing in, in medicine. But it's 50 years since Cicely Saunders started St. Christopher's next year. And this university, we have maybe four, perhaps five days out of four years in, in specific palliative medicine teaching. If you go to, for example, Royal North Shore Hospital, the last place I worked, there were 17 cardiologists. There was one whole time equivalent palliative medicine specialist. Now, if you think every, any, any acute hospital in the country, one third of the people in that hospital will be dead within a year. So wh where's the mismatch here? One person can't look after all those people. We have to change the way that the system works so that the palliative care specialist isn't running around trying to help everybody out. Yes, you can argue, well, yeah, we need to, we need to educate them. Actually. The universities need to educate them. The universities need to get serious about the fact that when a newly qualified doctor uh, hits the wards, the first year, on average, they'll look after 40 people who are dying and their families with five days training. I'd, I'd, I think it's got to be in the hospitals. It's got to be in the hospitals too. Because the culture of, of the organisation yes, yes. is very much, exactly. you know, yeah. what. We can teach stuff in So university. we should have 10 palliative yeah. medicine specialists in Royal North Shore Hospital and 20 specialist nurses and a social worker and some music therapists. It's, it's not sexy. That's the trouble with palliative care. We don't have a machine that flashes and goes beep. Well, we do have a little teeny weeny one. But, <laughs> you know, cardiology used to be really boring until they got all those clever machines. And, and now look at them. I think the other thing also is that it's still seen as an either-or. Yeah. So the concept of, of introducing palliative care that walks in parallel to an individual who will still be receiving some form of active treatment is still really foreign. Um, and I think that's the challenge. And to a certain extent, I think palliative care has to be a bit careful about how they may have initially set that up. You know, we don't take patients who are receiving active treatment with something that used to happen but doesn't happen anymore. 
One simple study published in an American journal has helped. Yeah. If you have palliative care and you've got lung cancer, you live longer. Um, and suddenly we find that referral to palliative care for lung cancer patients is a major research issue and everyone's trying to work out how do we get palliative care in that area. Um, I think it is about having a cultural environment that enables a conversation to occur within a team where people can stop and say, hey, where's this patient actually at now? You know, do, you know how do we integrate this better um, rather than it being an either or? When I worked at St Vincent's, I worked with a, a really wonderful pair of palliative care doctors who refused to see the three o'clock on a Friday afternoon patient before the long weekend, because that's when you got them, because everyone else wanted to go away. Or if the patient was imminently dying, they would just make sure they're comfortable and then say, introducing palliative care team to the family at this time is too late. And once we started to do that, because I thought it was very brave and palliative care has to be there, we can't say no. Um, it changed the thinking because we got this kind of, well, when do you think we should call you in then? Um, mm. it's, it's a challenge, but I think it's one that hasn't gone away and we've got to keep working on. But historically, doctors haven't been very good at diagnosing when somebody's dying even. And so that's a snag. And they need to talk to the nurses. They do. <laughs> they do. Hello. Um, I'm a third year physiotherapy student, and today you've talked a bit about setting up systems and government and education and things. Well, are there, coming out of a system that hasn't had that, are there any training or resources that you could recommend me and other people here to prepare myself in this field? I, I'm, I, I helped run a charity for physiotherapists to rehabilitate people who, have, uh, who are either having cancer treatment or have had cancer treatment. Because uh, the, there's so much literature which is being ignored about the enormous benefits of physiotherapy for survival from cancer. Not just making you feel better, but actually survival. And, and you know, the hospices, the palliative care units should all have gyms because it's much better uh, symptom management if you can exercise. Is that what you mean? So um, you can, I'll tell you at the end about this and you can go on our online training course and learn the all about it. The other thing is there's a wonderful organisation that originates from South Australia called CareSearch. It's one word if you Google it. Um, it has the most wonderful clearinghouse of resources, but it also can link you into um, education programs, both short and postgraduate sort of study. But I think you're actually tapping into a real issue, um, is that when it comes to doing sort of, trying to sort of bridge a gap, where does the new clinician go to find that? Um, you don't necessarily want to rush out and do a postgraduate a new postgraduate degree, having just completed your degree, you're trying to learn. So where are the opportunities? And I think that's where there's a big gap. Thank you. Uh, thank you. Um, 
I have a kind of two-tiered question, I suppose, and I have had the privilege of, work, of living in a household with a palliative care nurse and nursing director for most of my life, my mum. Um, so have been raised in an environment where talking about death and dying is kind of quite normalised. But what I'm interested is in hearing your thoughts is about the reimagining of public language around dying and the experience of dying beyond the clinical space. And I think someone mentioned something about death education in schools. But again, in workplaces, utilities organisations where people are ringing up to change accounts out of someone's name because they're about to die, those kinds of places about how can we as a kind of broader society start or feel compelled to talk about dying earlier and how? And that's the first question. And the second part are, is, are there other cultures and communities that you've had interaction with that aren't the kind of keep it to ourselves, bottle it up kind that do this well and can we learn from them? So I'll take a, a stab at the first question. Um, so one thing I'd love to, uh, you know, I think language is a big issue, uh, a huge issue around this stuff. And I, I think denial is a big theme for all of us, but it's also, I think, a little overly played now. Um, just like the physiotherapists, there, there are other disciplines and individuals who want to lean into this issue but don't know where to go, don't know how, don't know what the right language to use. So, um, so for one, I think we, I would love to see, I would love to see uh, some sort of articulate, almost a branding public service campaign go on around this so we can all agree on some terms and use them well. Uh, that, I would love to see that. And there's a little bit of talk in the States about a couple groups putting funds together to do that. Um, but also I think getting it out of this, you know, we are professionals sitting here talking about deprofessionalizing this, you know, so like uh, there are things, like death cafes, Death over dinner, the dinner party. These are these social, very basic death cafe. For those of you guys that don't know, you basically, I think it started in the UK. You, you, the rules are not that there are many rules. You convene people, you feed them, and you do not talk about anything commercial. And you just start talking about death. And it is amazing. We hosted them at UCSF and at Zen Hospice Project. People show up and have the most remarkable conversations. So efforts like that, are, I think, are really powerful. Um, so yeah, it's a big question. I'll just pause there. There's a couple thoughts. Yeah. People who do it really well, in my experience, are uh, indigenous uh, people. So in New Zealand, the Maori people have a much clearer understanding of bringing death into, onto the marae and celebrating the life of the person before they're dead. So a Māori person in a palliative care unit, there'll be 50 people there. And they'll be singing and praying and, and going out and getting food and bringing it in. Uh, the, the, the west coast of Scotland and, and Ireland, the Celtic peoples, have very similar traditions. I don't know enough about Aboriginal people, um, but I, I imagine that they have similar rituals and beliefs around death and dying, and they're not that frightened to talk about it. And I think that one of the benefits in New Zealand, because, because of the Treaty of Waitangi, we have to learn, we, we, we want to learn from those traditions, and so everything that is done in health has to incorporate Māori beliefs. And so working in a hospice is, is transforming. For me, it was, because I learned so much about uh, another culture's way of being. And they celebrated it in a way that the Europeans didn't. So uh, I feel greatly advantaged to having done that. Fascinating. It's um, said sometimes that it takes 
a village to raise a child. Maybe it takes a village to help someone yeah. um, to die. Yeah. Uh, question from Jill White. Uh, thanks very much. Um, I was interested, in, I'm a nurse and a midwife, and I think the similarities we don't take enough uh, notice of between um, what we do coming in and what we do leaving. Um, and I think there are lots of similarities. I'm interested in the notion of um, the corrective and the um, restorative um, job we have to do. And I'm, I'm reminded that we're sitting here at the University of Sydney. The University of Sydney has really taken um, very seriously the interdisciplinary nature of wicked problems. And we're sitting here in the Charles Perkins Centre and adjacent to this you know, fabulous building beside that is all about um, the corrective of obesity, diabetes and cardiovascular disease. But I hear very little in this university about um, palliative care and about um, the construction of the assistance with construction of communities of care that relate to, to dying. And I'm just wondering how we can think about getting this on the University of Sydney's agenda um, as seriously as the university's taken obesity, diabetes and cardiovascular disease, where they talk about it being as important to have the lawyers and the anthropologists and the sociologists um, engaged in the conversation as it is to have um, medicine and medical scientists. How do we do that for this? You go. <laughs> Well, this is the start, isn't it, Jill? And the fact that there are 400 people here now, when the university bigwigs realise that we've filled this hall with people who are interested in, in refashioning, reimagining death, maybe that's a start. But I, I think, as Kate says, it's got to go into all the hospitals. The, the teachers all need to say, when I started in Dunedin, where I uh, had an academic career, I spoke to one of the bioethicists who said when he arrived, nobody taught bioethics at all. So he went around every department and said, I'm new here, which, which uh, element of bioethics would you like me to teach in your course? And um, uh, I tried that when I first came to Sydney, going around various departments in the northern school saying, which aspect of palliative care would you like me to teach? None. <laughs> so, <laughs> So we, we've worked by stealth moving in. So I took over a, um, a first and second year tutorial group, clinical skills. And the only people I took them to were people who were dying. Because you learn about how to care for people who are dying from those people. You don't have all the sort of questions that, that medical students are taught to ask, you know, how many cigarettes do you smoke and all that. You ask them, what's it like to be you? And they'll tell you. And that's how they learn. And so that, that little group of students, for a whole year, they only spoke to people who were dying on a Tuesday morning between 8 and 10. That, I think we have to do it by stealth because the university, so far, hasn't um, taken it on. I think we've got to do it loudly. Um, I think it's about finding who, who the key opinion makers are and I can't help but reflect that I think someone that is an opinion maker is sitting on Senate. What a great position. So I'm just throwing that right back at you, Professor White. Um, uh, but I, I do, I agree with you. I think there is an opportunity, but it is about working out who are the key areas. And I think there's a little bit of an opportunity we've got with some of the things 
that if we could just get in the right people's ear, and it has to be broader than just the health faculties. Mm -hmm. It needs to yeah. involve architecture. It needs to involve all the, you know, the humanities. Mm -hmm. So that when we're talking about changing the dialogue in society, we start to look at that. I think until we can articulate what the value is to society and the value to the university to have a leadership role in that space, that's what we need to do. And, and I, I would agree with Rod, I think tonight's the, oh, an opportunity for us to take that forward. But it also has to happen collaboratively outside of the university. It's got to be... Um, yeah. It's very often personal contacts too, because I remember uh, when I was working in Wellington, we looked after the chauffeur of... Uh, the parliamentary fleet. One of the he'd been there for 25 years, and so we had the prime minister coming in to see him. The, the you know a lot of cabinet members. Before we knew it, the parliament was having fundraisers for our hospice, and they continued doing that. So there are little things which can make a difference, and people see the relevance. Um, I'm, I'm not I'm not a politician. Though. I'm no good at. Um, you, you'll leave that to you, Jill. So just let it be known that the uh, <coughs> troublemakers are all in this room, okay, when change comes. Um, we're going to have to wrap um, in a moment, but before um, I do that, I just want to do a couple of ad spots before we thank our, thank our guests. Um, you'll see on the slide above um, that for folks, folks who are wanting to take a deeper dive into the subject of palliative care, that uh, the Palliative Care New South Wales Biennial State Conference is on next week from the 13th to the 15th in Broken Hill. Um, and I do know that a certain uh, gentleman on, on the panel, BJ Miller, will be there for what I know what's going to be an incredible gathering. So um, have a look at that one. Um, also, um, to note, uh, next Wednesday, um, Professor Cheryl Jones from the Sydney Medical School and the Children's Hospital in Westmead um, will speak here at the University of Sydney on childhood infectious diseases and how to protect children from the cradle all the way to the mosh pit. Um, so uh, you can book through the Sydney Ideas website. Uh, also, uh, I know that Sydney Ideas people would be grateful if you would um, fill out the survey that you've got on your seat. A uh, chance to go into uh, the draw for the $300 STA travel voucher. Uh, and um, if you're interested in postgrad study here next Wednesday um, from 3 to 6.30 p.m., um, uh, you can register at the Postgrad website. Um, and now to our speakers and our guests, uh, Dr. BJ Miller, Professor Kate White, and Professor Rod McLeod, thank you for sharing your time um, and your wisdom this evening. Um, we're indebted to you. So please give a round of applause if you And finally, let me say thank you on behalf of the University of Sydney, also on behalf of Sydney, uh, uh, Sydney Medical School, Sydney Nursing School that sponsored the event tonight, um, and also on behalf of Sydney Ideas. We hope to see you again. Good night and a safe journey home. Thank you.